Hello and welcome to episode number 370 of the Armin Show podcast. I'm your host Armin Sherbanian. This is a special one. I like in-person discussion, learning, an individual I've known of for many years. I want to welcome you to this one with my guest today, Dr. Michael Shermer. Doctor, welcome to the show. Hey, nice to see you again. Or for the first time. For the first time <laughs> in person. But when you connect with somebody, it's like you've known them for a long time. Right. Well, uh, through books. I mean, in a way, you're connecting to somebody's mind when you read their book, even if they're dead, right? You can right. Talk to Shakespeare, as, as it were, or Homer. We're always connected there. Yeah. I talked about that before, how we're always connected to philosophers from the past if we link to their ideas. Right. You read David Hume, and it's like, oh, my God, I'm talking to one of the great Enlightenment philosophers of all time, and he's dead. He's long gone. <laughs> so you can talk to the dead. <laughs> and he represents Scotland well. Yeah, indeed. I like him and Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius and other ones as well. Right. Let me give a little background here for the individuals that don't know. One, I know of Michael from the past where I once did a text interview with you on the moral arc and skeptic uh, maybe five, six years ago. And that meant a lot to me because it was covering two books at once. And the level of detail I liked of the moral arc was a lot. So I enjoyed that book. I want to bring that up. You are the founding publisher of Skeptic Magazine, which there are some... Uh, right there in front of us, the host of the Michael Shermer Show. We both have our show with our name on it, which is a cool thing. Presidential Fellow at Chapman University, where you teach Skepticism 101. You were a monthly columnist at Scientific American for 18 years, which is super duper. Now you write a weekly Substack column. All the intelligent material I see on Substack is wonderful. And author of many books, including what I mentioned, The Moral Arc, uh, Believing Brain, Skeptic, uh, your new book, Conspiracy, and Heaven on Earth, and more. This is a wonderful thing. What has brought you into the category of skepticism in full in the first place? Because this is a theme across much of what you've done. You also have Skeptic Society with many members. Mm, yeah, good. Okay, big broad question. Uh, I was always interested in... These topics, the kind of fringes of science, the paranormal, the supernatural, cults, conspiracy theories, uh, ever since I was in college, which was 50 years ago that I matriculated uh, this month, uh, September of 2022. And so I thought there might be something to it because it seemed like a lot of really smart people believed a lot of these things. And, you know, when I went to graduate school and training in experimental psych, I learned the methods of science and statistics and research methods. And it seemed like a lot of the research on the paranormal and supernatural was not very rigorous. And uh, there were people who attempted it, but it seemed like their research was not as rigorous as what professional scientists were doing. And then it, it, around the time I was in graduate school, there was a kind of a nascent skeptical movement that was started. Uh, with uh, what is now called Skeptical Inquirer magazine. And, and at the time it was called Psychop, but Center for Inquiry is what it's called now. But these are people like James Randi and Martin Gardner, Paul Kurtz, Ray Hyman, and others who uh, really wanted to investigate the claims that people were being made, particularly people like Uri Geller, who was hugely famous. I mean, he was like the cover of Time magazine or maybe it was News. I mean, he was on all the talk shows. I mean, he was huge, bending spoons with his mind and of course these magicians like randy's like he's doing it the hard way there's magic tricks of how to bend spoons right and so i thought huh right so and scientists could not figure out how this was done and they remained baffled so it was clear to me that there was a market for a need for 
a skeptical movement, um, which was undergoing. I mean, like skeptical magazines, conferences, methods, tools. What are the what are the kind of what's in the toolkit of the skeptic who wants to investigate a claim? And it turns out that, uh, it's different than science and philosophy. I mean, there's a kind of a specific set of uh, tools that we use to apply to claims, extraordinary claims, like. Sagan's famous extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, the ECRI principle. And, uh, you know, that, that that's kind of a tool you would apply to anything, but particularly to claims that that people in these realms make and that skeptics can investigate. So uh, this just became, over the course of many years, my full-time job, as it were. You know, publishing the magazine, running the nonprofit Science Education Skeptic Society. And I'm still a professor at Chapman, but my main job is here. This is it. You know, <laughs> we just moved into the office, as you can see in the background. Uh, and, but, the, you know, just um, kind of getting the message out to the public, to everybody, you know, that uh, there, there are ways to think and reason about any kind of claim you hear. It could be from the paranormal, like ESP and psychics and astrologers, to you know, cults uh, to conspiracy theories like the 2020 election was rigged. You know, how should we think about those claims? How do you how do you know it wasn't rigged? How do you know it was rigged? You know, what kind of questions should you ask people? So that's what I'm interested in. Everything. It's a cool category and very important. I would say it's more important in my mind. It's more important now than it was even 10 years ago as things shift away from looking at the detail of what's going on and actually challenging it or questioning it as a person, what kinds of qualities lend themselves to becoming skeptical versus letting things go and never questioning what's in your world? Well, I mean, most people do that. <laughs> they don't bother to ask. Right. But when it comes down to something important, like, again, you know, was the 2020 election fraudulent? That's a hugely important question, because if it is, we have a serious problem. And if it isn't, then why is it that half the other party, the Republican Party, thinks it was? Whoa. Okay, so now we're talking about, you know, people are marching on the Capitol to overthrow the government. That's about as serious as you can get. It's the kind of thing you can't really ignore or treat as entertainment, you know, like whether somebody reads their astrology column or not. You know, it's not a big deal, right? Uh, very few people are making life decisions based on astrology. Uh, hopefully not political leaders or you know CEOs of major corporations. So that's you know relatively harmless. But as you ratchet up to more serious things, or take a quack medicine, another one of our areas, you know people are uh, diagnosed with cancer. Maybe they take the traditional treatments. Maybe they don't. Maybe they go off to some foreign country to try some kind of weird uh, alternative, so-called alternative treatments. Uh, well, it would help to know if they work or not. Right. <laughs> because if they don't, then you should know that. So the kind of the underlying principle here is the truth matters. We want to know what's true, not what I want to be true, because everybody does that. But what's actually true? And, and how do you know? Now, by the way, the subtitle of your book is why the rational believe the irrational. Are the irrational, can they be a guiding force for the rational folks or should the rational be guiding? Who should be guiding the others, if we would think well, about it. So the, the subtitle is really after this hard question of why is it that smart people <laughs> believe weird things, which is, you know, this was my first book here, why, why people believe weird things. So the hard question is why smart people <coughs> believe weird things. And the answer is because they're better at rationalizing beliefs they arrived at for non-smart reasons. 
So this would apply to a lot of conspiracy theories. Now, some conspiracy theories turn out to be true. There are conspiracies. But here we're talking about the kind of really weird ones like QAnon, Pizzagate, you know, the claim that Hillary and other Democrats are in charge of this secret satanic pedophile cult that's being run out of a pizzeria in Washington, D.C. Now, is it possible that anyone can really believe this? Right. I mean, one guy did Edgar Welch. He went there with his gun to break up the pedophile ring, which is what you would do if you really believed it. And the police weren't doing anything about this. I'm going down there. I mean, he left a note for his daughters. You know, I'm going in. This is what I would do for you if I thought you were being uh, you know, trafficked. So, you know, but most people don't. So what's really going on there is, you know, that that conspiracy is a proxy for something else. You know, that that, that we don't trust the left. You know, the libtards, we're going to own them. You know, Hillary's evil. The Democrats are evil. They're trying to destroy America. Whether that pizzeria, Pizzagate thing is true or not, that's eh, kind of secondary. It, it, it's, a, it's a kind of a proxy for some general thing there. So these are rational people. You know, you've seen the interviews with the people that um, were at the inside the, the Capitol Dome on January 6th. These aren't tinfoil hat wearing weirdos just completely uneducated, unemployed. No, these are like regular people, you know, ex-soldiers, lawyers, doctors, business owners, successful people left their jobs, left their families to go to overthrow the government. <laughs> right? So they're rational, believing an irrational thing. Why? What's the explanation for that? So that's what I'm after in the book. That's a cool way to look at it at that angle. Some of the key events, actually, so I look more at the philosophies and personality types that uh, have certain views and what leads them to it psychologically. And then there's the examples of it actually in place. So sticking with the more practical world, what are some of the key examples where uh, conspiracy has taken hold in the past, let's say, decade that are uh, well known or at least in the conspiracy world most well known? Oh, well, I, you know, I hit most of the big ones in the book, uh, JFK assassination, 9-11 truth, Obama birtherism, uh, you know, QAnon, as I mentioned, Pizzagate, rigged election conspiracy theory, but also a lot of the older ones that turn out to be true, like MKUltra, which was the CIA program of mind control. Uh, we were concerned about that the Russians, the Chinese, and the North Koreans were uh, ahead of us in psychological and neurophysiological techniques to get people to reveal their secrets, you know, mind control, or create a Manchurian candidate as the movie had it, where you could essentially uh, program somebody to robotically, say, assassinate a foreign leader. And believe it or not, I mean, just go down the rabbit hole of these subjects, the CIA did have programs to assassinate foreign leaders. I mean, this was, you know, completely... I don't know if you'd say it's legal. No one knew they were doing it. I mean, it was all super top secret. You know, many attempts to assassinate Castro, for example, and other foreign leaders, some successfully. And so, you know, those kinds of things, when you read about them now, decades later, they've come out and you think, huh. So one reason people believe conspiracy theories is because a lot of them are true. You know, our government, our the CIA was doing this. Yeah. What? I mean, did Congress approve this? No. Nobody, they didn't even know about it. Right. Wow. Okay. Then you find, so you, you hear enough of these things, you think, well, okay, well, then what else is going on? Right. So some of the conspiracy theories we hear now sound pretty wacky, but, you know, Sandy Hook was a false flag operation, says Alex Jones. Yeah, that's ridiculous and false, but false flag operations do happen. 
<laughs> you know, governments conspire to do things as a pretense to going to war. Like, so no, I wouldn't say 9-11. Uh, yeah, I mean, I would definitely say 9-11 was not an inside job in any way. Bush didn't know it was going to happen. He didn't make it happen. But politicians do capitalize on what happens. In this case, that's what the Bush administration did. They used this as a pretense to go to war, not just in Afghanistan, but especially Iraq, you know, for all the reasons we know. Oil, his father didn't finish the job, and on and on. And um, so in conspiracy circles, they have this debate about uh, MyHop. Did he make it happen on purpose or LIHOP? Did he let it happen on purpose? Well, my in my book, I introduced COWHOP, C-O-W. <laughs> capitalized on what happened on purpose, which politicians do. Like, okay, well, we, we, we've wanted to go to war. We don't have a reason. Now we have a reason. Let's do it. Very strategic move of sorts. Take advantage of what is current, apply it adaptively to your thing, and make it look like you already, it was in this direction. We're already going that way. That makes sense. Yeah, I think about Pearl Harbor. I mean, uh, Roosevelt uh, long wanted to get into the war to support the British. And, um, you know, Churchill was begging him to get involved because, you know, we could lose. This would be the end of Western democracy, Western civilization in Europe. Uh, had the Nazis succeeded and, and Roosevelt was hands were tied by Congress, by treaties, by laws. You know, OK, we can lend you 50 destroyers, the lend lease program. We can give you some money, this and that. But there's not much we I can't send troops, you know, unless we're officially at war. Well, so, you know, Pearl Harbor made that happen okay we're at war and hitler declared war on the united states boom okay we'll send everything right so it's not like but he was accused there were conspiracy theories about pearl harbor oh roosevelt knew it would happen or he made it happen lie hop my hop but no no he just capitalized on what happened on purpose cow hop right okay (laughs) that term is great (laughs) it's true taking advantage of the moment one thing that you reminded me of here that you mentioned in the book is conspiracies don't always have a negative undertone they are sometimes Uh, They have like a pejorative connotation, but they can be actual things that occur, and some of them are actual, and they did occur, and it's just describing a plot or plan of people to do something, so they're not always to be disregarded. And also the idea that uh, there is, uh, you would rather have a false positive than a false negative, because a false negative would mean that the item happened, you weren't prepared for it, and it overtook you, versus a false positive where you prepared over prepared prepared maybe but nothing happens so you're fine um what is an example or two of a false negative that has taken place where individuals were unprepared for a conspiracy and uh, were overtaken because of that Mm, yeah great question you just outlined the signal detection problem right how do we detect the signal in the noise there's a lot of noise so because of the problem of patternicity, where we tend to find meaningful patterns in random noise, you got to be really careful. You got to have a high bar set that that's a true conspiracy uh, that the theory is recognizing. So uh, that's hard to do. But uh, you know, one of the arguments I made that you just articulated was that we're more likely to make type one errors, false positives, than type two errors, false negatives. Better to assume the bad thing is real when it turns out it's not. No harm. Uh, versus missing the bad thing. You know, there's a coalition against you and they're out to get you and you, you don't recognize it. Then that can take you out of the gene pool or take you <laughs> or whatever. The, um, it's an evolutionary argument, right? Uh, so now there's no perfect algorithm for this, for any signal detection problem. It depends on the particular case you're, you're studying, right? So what where does the preponderance of evidence lead to, you know, one 
conclusion or the other. And, you know, so I have my conspiracy detection kit in the book. You know, you have to ask certain questions about it. Like, how many people would have to be involved to pull this off? You know, the more people, less likely it is to be true. You know, people are incompetent. They make mistakes. They can't keep their mouth shut. We hear about it later. You know, like the most of the you know big conspiracies by governments, we find out about them because um, of um, you know leaks of like like WikiLeaks, for example, is an example. We find out what our government was doing, what you know, whistleblowers. You know, in a way, we have whistleblower laws because the government re- realized, well, we better protect these people because we really need to know what's going on. You know, corporations or government agencies. So that's you know that's kind of a, a way at it. Like you know, let's let's try to determine which are true, which are false. So you know, with conspiracies again, it's not like perpetual motion machines. It can't be true. You know, they, they would violate the second law of thermodynamics. All of physics would be out the window. Say if ESP was real, it's not. Can't be. Uh, but conspiracies do happen. These are real, right? And a lot of them. So enough that we pays to be a little paranoid. Right. Just make more type one errors, false positives like ah, I thought that one was real. It's not. But hey, at least at least I didn't get taken up and 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 get screwed over at work or, you know, by whoever, you know. And, you know, and again, people do conspire. I mean, you know, a lot of corporations and government agencies are, are not transparent. So it's not clear why some people get raises and others don't. Why some people climb the company ladder faster than others and people that don't feel like there's something maybe going on here why am i not getting the raise how come that guy got uh uh you know elevated faster than me and sometimes there's reasons for that you know cabals and conspiracies they they really do happen that's true there are things underneath that are not described always in detail and having an idea about that is not always so bad maybe you're trying to figure out the reasoning that will never be publicly described because that would be disadvantageous to that crew Interesting. Now, one thing you mentioned earlier was patternicity. And I like how in the book you listed many times uh, 10 or 7 or 10 or more items representing a description of something related to conspiratorial conduct. So one was uh, qualities that I believe make a conspiracy uh, less likely to occur or more likely. Patternicity, agenticity, and that category. Oh, just, uh, well, here I'm looking at uh, so criteria for what um, would make a conspiracy theory true or false, right? And and these are kind of more probabilities. Like just it, the more likely it is to be a random pattern that's not really there, the less likely the conspiracy theory is true. Like like the more people have to be involved or the more elements that have to come together. And again, the, the brain is wired to see patterns that aren't there, to find agents, hidden secret agents that aren't really there. Uh, we just do that naturally. So we have to have tools to overcome that. This is true for all of science, right? You know, is climate, is global warming, is the, is the pattern of climate change real or is it an artifact of some statistical effect? Well, we, we, we need to know that. And the brain automatically sees that. Oh, okay, CO2 gases are going up, temperatures are going up. That's a correlation. But as we are all taught in day one of statistics, correlations do not mean causations. Right. Sometimes they do. But sometimes they don't. So we have to have some techniques to tell the difference. So that's true with conspiracies. Now, going back to people and their likelihood to attach to a conspiracy, which you covered in quite a few places in the book, what are some ways if you take an average individual, you would be able to 
think or relate them to the idea that they would be more likely to believe in a conspiracy? What are some of the features we look at? All right. Well, so there, uh, you know, we're kind of looking at proximate causes of belief versus ultimate causes of belief. Um, so proximate causes are like, what about education? Do more educated people, uh, are, are edu- more educated people less likely to believe? Yes. Conspiracy theories, a little bit, but not, not a lot. It's not huge. You know, if you have a graduate degree versus a bachelor's degree versus a high school diploma, um, you know, conspiracism goes down a little bit, but not by much, because I think, in fact, it's good to be a little paranoid, as I said, right? So there's some underlying cause there. Race is not a good predictor of conspiracism overall, but it is of which conspiracy theories you're more likely to believe. African-Americans in America are more likely to think that the CIA planted crack cocaine in inner cities or created invented AIDS to decimate the uh, black population in American cities and so on. Uh, those are not true, but uh, Tuskegee experiment was where, you know, uh, medications for syphilis was withheld from African-American victims of, of having an STD when they could have been treated and cured or at least, you know, prevent the spread. And they weren't because of the government decided we wanted to use them as test subjects. Astonishing that this happened in the 20th century, like the middle of the 20th century. It's, our government did this? Yeah. Right. So, of course, you know, when the COVID-19 vaccines are rolled out, African-Americans were more vaccine hesitant than white Americans. And that is the reason they gave. And it's like, OK, it's understandable. Right. Things have come a long ways. We don't do that anymore. Right. But still, white Americans are more likely to think that the government is conspiring to take away their guns. You know, Second Amendment stuff. And uh, and so so race is, you know, a, kind of a proxy for which ones. You know, and and then there's personality type. Some people are more suspicious and some are more gullible, more open minded. You know, there's kind of a balance between being so skeptical that you don't believe anything, which is not good. You should believe things that have evidence for them and being so open minded, your brains fall out and you think everything is real. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So, you know, the, the rub is where do you draw that line? And there's no perfect algorithm to tell you depends on the particular claim, the evidence for it. So that's true. The qualities in place. I always look at people in as a singular entity when I'm thinking about concepts and uh, understanding what they do in the bigger picture. And uh, what is if there's a person who has a conspiratorial well, actually I want to go actually pull back to that one. Uh, what has dealing with skepticism and conspiracy brought to you this was a question i had in mind what has it brought more of to you than the average individual over the years does it bring certain kind of individuals what comes with the category because i think every category Uh, comes with something well yeah i I guess historically it's been kind of a fringe element to it you know the jfk assassinations or the john birchers or you know some of the anti-catholic conspiracy theorists and anti-jewish anti-semitic conspiracy theorists sort of going back to the middle of the 20th century that that had kind of a fringy element to it but i I think it's gone more mainstream of late particularly the last uh, the internet uh, because it could reach so many more people in real time uh so 9-11 truth i never thought this would uh take off but it did you know there was that uh internet film homemade film uh loose change 
you know, with a viewership of like tens of millions of people. It's astonishing how many people can be reached. The analogy I make in the book is, you know, back in the 60s, JFK assassination conspiracy theorists had their little newsletters that they mailed out, you know, printed on mimeograph sheets and they meet in hotel rooms, you know, conference rooms with a dozen people. Now you can have, you know, 10 million people read your newsletter. And uh, so it reaches far more people and it mainstreams a lot of these ideas that would otherwise, I think, stay on the fringes. The fringe makes sense. Oh, that actually, and also related to that, let's say the categories of uh, like groups, QAnon or 4chan or 8chan, all these internet groups, is this like a large population or does it just seem large? I never took part in... I, I always like to feel like I was with the internet when it started and I followed every category, but some categories I left alone and I wonder how large they got. How might one yes, describe that? Well, I, yeah, I wasn't a big user of 4chan or 8chan or any of those either. Uh, and it's hard to get numbers on them because, um, you know, polling data is not always accurate with self-report data. And, uh, but, but if you look at like ma more mainstream polls, like how many Republicans, uh, Versus Democrats believe that the QAnon or Pizzagate or whatever, or if you want to go higher up, rigged election. The 2020 was rigged. Election was rigged. You know, there it's you know it's a significant two-digit number in the of, of, of Republicans, somewhere between a third and two thirds, depending on how the questions are asked. Think, you know, the Biden is illegitimate. Trump is still president. He's going to be put back in the office at any moment. Not thousands or hundreds of thousands, tens of millions, right? So that's pretty big. Now, do they go on? 4chan, no. Most of them are, are, are kind of getting this information from more mainstream sources. You know, if not Fox News, one of the other ones, like uh, one, what's that, One America, what's the other uh, news, the news, uh, shoot, <laughs> escapes me now, the name of the, the oh, yeah, I've heard. Those, those political I've heard. news that are far, far right leaning. And of course you have Newsmax? Yeah, Newsmax, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So they get they get that from that, or they just they hear a friend of a friend told them that, you know, the election was rigged, or that they hear Trump uh, talking about this in his speeches in, online, and so there they get it not from the super fringy areas, but from more mainstream. But you know, it's, there's a tr trickle up effect from those fringes where it gets momentum online, and then there's people hear about it. And again, I talk I call this tribal conspiracism. You know, this is what our tribe believes. And, you know, I, I don't have the resources to check to see if the election was rigged or not. What do I know about, you know, that precinct in Georgia where they were counting the votes and then some truck pulled up at two in the morning and they unloaded some boxes in the back. What was going on there? I don't know. How would I know? I wouldn't even know who to call. But I heard from a friend at work that, that you know, this is it's been clear, clearly demonstrated. These were fraudulent boxes of votes that said, you know, Trump and then they changed them to Biden. Well, when you look into it, you find this is complete nonsense. But, but just hearing about it from you know somebody at work or whatever, then that's how it it, it kind of filters out. On that specific point, have you heard about that item where if twenty five percent of a group believes something, that's when it starts to take hold? Have you looked into something like that? Where yeah, well, you know, what's the, the point? Tipping points. It, it may not even need to be that high. You just it just you know, the tipping point can be a single digit number, but then you get this what's called a spiral of silence or you know, the pluralistic ignorance where everybody thinks everybody else thinks something when almost none of them do. The classic experiment on this was with uh, college binge drinking. You know, if you ask students individually, they'll mostly say, no, I don't I don't really like doing that. But, you know, everybody else does. 
<laughs> yeah. And every one of them privately says, no, I'm not into it, but everybody else is. And so you can get this kind of collective action when no one actually want, really wants to do it. Right. And so, um, yeah, that's I think a lot of that happens when you hear about these things like, oh, I don't know about the rigged election, but everybody else seems to think so. maybe it is true. That's true. I've seen this in a few categories. There's a show where they talk to girls about their dating and they're like, I'm really, let's say, conservative, but I have friends who do this. And they ask the next person, they're like, I'm also conservative, but I have friends who do these things. I guess nobody ends up doing the things that are not good looking in public. Same thing with the binge right. drinking or whatever it is. It's always right. somewhere else in a way. Right. One related item, but separate is you talked about how if there's conspiracies, even if you add in one that was made up, that doesn't even exist, some people will join in on that. And there are some features of people that make them more likely to jump in on conspiracy, regardless, like uh, fear was a big one. Can you speak on fear yeah, and how right, it connects? Yeah, right, right, right. So there you're tapping into anxiety, lack of control, or locus of control, for example. If I tend to focus on myself being in control, I have a high internal locus of control. I think I can make things happen. And, and people with high internal locus of control are less likely to believe in conspiracies, uh, conspiracy theories, because uh, those low in internal locus of control or they're high in external locus of control, things that think that things happen to them by other people and things are out there that are out of my control. And I'm wary of that. Right. And both are true <laughs> to a certain extent. Uh, again, there are real conspiracies. And, it, you know, the, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean people aren't out to get you. Sometimes they are. <laughs> so, um, but but being put in a position of, uh, like, un feeling unstable, uncertain, anxious, out of control, con conspiracism, illusory, you know, kind of illusory uh, patternicity happens. Like, you are, you do tend to see things that are not really there. And that kind of makes sense, you know, if you think about it, if because a lot of times people in power don't have as much power as they think they would have when they were out of power. And people out of power think that people in power have way more control than they actually do. And so a lot of conspiracism happens by people out of power. But just politically, the, the losing party in any election tends to think the other guy's cheated. And then at some point they give up and just work on the next election. The only thing different about Trump is he never get, he never abandoned the the rigged election conspiracy. Even in twenty sixteen, he still thinks it was rigged to to for Hillary to get more of the popular vote than he did. He still doesn't like that. Right? Normally, when the party wins, they drop the conspiracism. Like, oh, it's totally fair. We won. <laughs> it's totally fair election. Right. <laughs> right. So that's unusual now. But normally, uh, once you are in a, a position of control and confidence and power, then then you don't need conspiracism. Right. It's not advantageous at that point. One thing that came to mind there is, uh, speaking of power, you had talked about things that make a conspiracy not functional, such as, uh, or less likely to be the case, if it requires some sort of super powerful individual or a person or a large number of individuals to participate. If it, if it requires some grandiose elements, then the likelihood of it being an actual thing is much lower that's just a couple of the elements at play. Yeah, here I'm making a distinction between realistic conspiracy theories uh, that may be true, which usually involve some very specific thing. Uh, like, you know, the example I use is Volkswagen cheating the emission standards of the EU for years. 
that's not surprising. We know corporations do things to gain an unfair advantage, get a little extra profit. Um, and so no shocker there or like insider trading on Wall Street. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's, it's a daily news story. You know, but, you know, world domination. You know, <laughs> world domination. Control the entire comp- country. Well, maybe not so much. Less likely to be true. Right. And uh, so that, you know, just like, and again, how many, how many, not only people would have to be involved, how many elements have to come together just right for the conspiracy to be pulled off? And, and the answer is that is not many, because um, the more you have, the more things have to come together just the right way, um, the harder it would be to pull it off just because people screw up, things happen, chance, randomness, entropy, you know. So uh, if you take something like 9-11 as an inside job, well, what would it take for the Bush administration to actually hire people? You have to pay people. Where does the money come from? And, you know, it would, it would have to be at least hundreds of workers that you'd send into those buildings, knock down the, through the drywall to get into where the support structures are and wrap them in those explosive devices that people use to bring down buildings, demolition experts. And you can ask these companies we have, um, you know, what does it take? And they tell you, oh, my God, it's a huge job. It takes weeks and months to prepare the building. We have to get in there and break all the drywall out and put the explosive devices around the beams and so on. And so it's obvious what we're doing. How would you do that to the World Trade Center buildings? Two of the most secure buildings in the world, right? Because they were—it was bombed, the basement bomb in 1993 by Al Qaeda. Oh, okay, there's a clue, right? So they're super caught. Well, they went in there under the pretense of elevator repair. Elevator repair? What are they doing? Not near the elevator, right? And how would they spend weeks or months in there preparing those buildings? They're huge, and and not only that, they would have to plant the explosives devices in the exact floors. That the planes hit because we saw you can see on the videos the buildings collapse at the place where the planes hit, and, and often at an angle. So you'd have to know that the explosive devices have to be planted at floors, you know, 89, 90, 91, 92, 93, 94, 96, because that's the you know the wing hit at that because that's the way it collapsed, right? How would they know that ahead of time? <laughs> yeah, and finally, not one of them, not one of these people has told anybody about this. Not one of them has told the friend of a friend or a girlfriend or a spouse or a workmate, you know, hey, I was in on it. I was there. I know somebody, my brother, my fellow workmate. He joined the, the group and he was there. You know, you saw what happened with the January 6th insurrection. They People posted on social media, here I am, you know, with a selfie. <laughs> and the FBI tracked him down. There they are. Boom, boom, boom. Got him. Got him right and left. Right. Not one person has been indicted or accused or even or even spoken up about 9-11 at all not one that tells us it's not an inside job impossible there's something about when there's too many missing pieces and it would take so much for it to occur that maybe this is outlandish in a way it's like when someone comes up with a scenario for why a relationship didn't work because this 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 but actually just it wasn't a fit or they left or something right it's more simple right and also you shouldn't attribute uh i don't know if this is exactly related but to malice i guess or planning something that is more likely to be oh yes the conspiracy principle never attribute to malice it could be explained by randomness or chance or incompetence right <laughs> people are, are very incompetent i remember i was for my first book why people believe were things i was on a book tour i went on g gordon liddy's radio talk show right he asked me about you know conspiracies i said well 
you know more about it than I do. You're Mr. Watergate. <laughs> and uh, he goes, yeah, people are incompetent, can't keep their mouth shut. It's hard to get it's hard to get even a couple people to coordinate and do something. Right. And, you know, that's why I have that whole chapter on the First World War, which was triggered by a conspiracy to assassinate Franz Ferdinand, who was the heir apparent to the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which, you know, which is a threat to Serbia. So the Serbian nationalists assassinated him. But it was quite a complex plot. By complex, I mean relatively simple compared to 9-11 as an inside job. But, you know, you just have seven guys and they have to meet. You got to go to these particular house and get this code word. Then they give you the gun or the hand grenade. And, you know, half of them didn't even get, weren't even able to do that. Then somebody else went to the wrong place, you know, not on the parade route. Then a couple of guys were on the parade route. And one of them, you know, takes his hand grenade and hits it against the thing to ignite it to get. And then you got like 10 seconds. And, but one of the hand grenades didn't ignite and another gun jammed and only one of them worked. The hand grenade went off, but it bounced off the, 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 the trunk of the car and rolled under the car behind them. So it blew up the wrong car. And you know, the whole thing was just a complete mess. And the only reason it happened at all is by pure chance that, you know, after Franz Ferdinand was attacked, he went to you know, give a speech and complained about the reception he got, which is not good. <laughs> and then he goes, let's go back to the hospital, check on our comrades who were injured in that first explosive. So they go back on the same parade route where they just by chance happened to run into the one guy left who was kind of sitting there on the curb like, oh, this is a wasted day. And, and here comes the car. He's like, oh, my God, there he is. Bam. Bam. That's how things normally go. Yeah, I've thought about this for many scenarios. If it takes so much effort, it's they're not light. Most of these scenarios are the average person. Let's say it's like, oh, I have to go to the gym. A lot of effort, right? It's like four thousand pieces for some of these huge items, and then the idea that it just happens and it's just negative energy. It's so calculated. There's so much effort in these logic, management, planning. Oh, this person will be there. Okay, we'll do this. We'll go there. It, there's some intelligence in that to any sort of high level, let's say conspiracy or effort. It's not simple. You cannot do it. I thought about that. Think about the fake moon landing. What would it take to fake a moon landing? You talk about that word. I mean, it's, it's, it's just a comic routine that has been done comedically where, you know, you, well, people are going to ask us how we got to the moon. Well, so we got to build this huge rocket so they can see, well, that's how we got to the moon, that huge rocket. Well, that's going to be pretty expensive. <laughs> and you got to pay all these actors and feed them every day. And, you know, where are we going to have this set that we're going to film this thing? You know, <laughs> the, the end of this comedic routine is, wouldn't it be cheaper to just go to the moon and film it there? <laughs> we'll just get there. <laughs> yeah, right. So, uh, and again, not one person has ever come through and said, you know, I was the cameraman on the fake moon landing shoot. People would absolutely do that. You know, people have, are blabbermouths. You know, they can't they can't keep their mouth shut. They want to tell other people about it. They want to write the tell-all book, put it in their memoirs, go on 60 Minutes and go, oh, I got a story for you. And here's my three sources to confirm it. And then next thing you know, the guy's blabbing away to Congress and we hear about it. But that has not had the fact that that never that doesn't happen for these like the fake moon landing, 9-11, so on. It's not true. I have a challenge question here for Variety. It, let's say you were a person and you wanted to get a conspiracy somehow developed, at least with your friend group or a larger group or such. What are some things you would do? Would you attach to people's thoughts already? Would you start from scratch? What are some things you would do if you wanted to actually like start one from scratch? Start a conspiracy? Yeah. <laughs> Fake your own conspiracy theory? Uh, people have done that. <laughs> well, we know that, I mean, someone like Alex Jones, he just makes stuff up on the fly in real time and 
people just believe it and you can see the elements to it. Yeah, if you're going to make one up, well, of course, you got to have it's got to be grand. Can't be we're going to have this big plot so we can make up one percent uh, more uh, profit in our company. That's, <laughs> that's boring. We're making one percent, <laughs> right? You know, no, it's got to be something you know to get people behind. We're gonna, we're gonna, oh, like the the January sixth insurrectionists. Like, oh my God, this is our seventeen seventy six moment. That's one of them. So, you know, we're going in. It's going to be huge. Got to get down there, and uh, we're going to march. We're going to be strong. They're stealing our country from us, right? underneath our noses we're not going to put up with this you know and the second amendment people showed up the proud boys with their guns and a body armor and and uh and, and those wrist ties you know the plastic ties and i mean a lot of them were serious about this and they were excited i mean again you know just you know we're gonna make the country one percent better than it was you know we want to make it great again in a big way right and, and you know we're gonna go down there and stop the steal that that's the kind of conspiracy theory that in, ignites people, gets them motivated. Right? You've seen those videos that uh, of uh, Steve Bannon on that podcast the day before, uh, on January fifth. He was on somebody's podcast, and he, they, you can see the videos of it on YouTube. He's going, "Oh, this is going to be huge tomorrow. It's going to be it. It you know, it's going to be rocking. I mean, it's you got to be there." And you can see people just, "Oh my god, oh my god, I want to get down there. This is it." You know, it's like I feel like I'm Je- Thomas Jefferson and John Adams and Hamilton, and we're going to start a new country. We're going to—it's going to be giant. You know, that's what ignites people. You have to be like, you're part of the—you're one of the heroes, and you're saving, and you're causing the big change. Yeah, maybe it makes you feel bigger. Maybe it would uh, match more likely to a person who has some feeling of being smaller that this would make them feel larger and more relevant. Most of us feel small because we are. Most of us can't really do much of anything except in our personal lives and lives of our family and maybe influence our fellow workmates at work. And I mean, that's about it, right? Unless you run for office or you're the police captain or, you, you know, some politician, a position of power, you're the CEO of a major corporation. You know, those people, they have real power. Most of us, we're just regular folks, right? So a conspiracy theory is kind of, invigorating like ooh, i'm i have some inside knowledge this is really cool secret information that's always appealed to people that there's secret information secret knowledge uh you know the knowledge of the gods or the mystics or you know anybody that's seemingly has power and now i get to participate in that that feels good it's it's not just entertaining although it is that but it also makes you feel like you're in you're in the club now whereas most of the time most of us aren't <laughs> right left out in a way yeah that's true some in like an intellectual way some as uh, not part of their old let's say friend groups in different ways yeah you can be left out in some form now one thing that comes to mind is that when people make um large statements well that's one category and then sometimes when people are saying things they are held back in current time they are censored in some way from presenting their viewpoints, or the uh, term canceled in, in recent time is popular. And you mentioned in your book about how that does not match clearly with uh, allowing uh, truth to show. Can you speak on canceling and or censorious nature and how it is not advantageous to a society? Mm. Well, free society, particularly a democracy, um, I mean, one reason that the First Amendment is first is because it's foundational, right? Free speech. 
now of course this doesn't uh, speak to whether Twitter should ban people or not. That's it's a private company, well, publicly traded, but it's not a government agency. So the First Amendment just applies to the government can't um, silence you. Um, but the reason for that, and the reason it's probably better if Twitter and these social media companies don't ban people, or at least keep it to a minimum, is because this is the, the right that gives rise to all the other rights. That is, if you can't freely speak your mind, think the thoughts you want and speak the thoughts that you're thinking, then we're doomed, right? Because who knows what the truth is? I don't know everything. I'm not omniscient, neither are you. And so how are we going to get there? Well, we got to talk to each other, right? We got to communicate. We got to spitball ideas and then test them. It's the base, the constitution of knowledge, as Jonathan Rausch calls it in his great book, uh, that uh, science and journalism, fact-checking, peer review, you know, this kind of compu- this sort of disputation and debate um, between great minds. This is how we arrive at the truth. And so the moment you start censoring people because that's the bad idea. Well, who decided that? You? You got the moral, po- you know, we're in the middle of this news story about these uh, protests in Iran over the moral police killed this woman because she didn't wear a hijab right. Moral police? What? We don't. We would never do that in America. Well, actually, we do do that in America, right? Social media is always canceling, cancel culture. That's what it is. It's the moral police. You know, you're not woke enough, right? So we've been picking on the right here. Let me pick on the left a little bit, right? You know, I'm not very woke. I'm a baby boomer. I'm kind of traditionally old school liberal in most of my uh, social attitudes. And uh, but I, you know, some of this far left progressive wokeness, it just seems insane to me. And then particularly the cancellation of people that use the wrong pronouns or you use the wrong adjective or you misspoke. Uh, I got that one tweet. I know you've tweeted 10,000 times, but I found one. That's the one. You're out. Right. It's like, okay, that's, you know, that's worse than what the right does. You know, the right used to be into the, you know, we got we're worried about rock lyrics, you know, or Madonna's video music videos, you know, now, now it's the left doing the same left used to defend uh, rockers and Madonna and you know that kind of thing. Now it's gone the op- It's kind of flipped, which is weird. You mentioned that actually in the book that there are. You came up with uh, three groupings at the end. One was smaller of types of conspiracies. One was woke. One was uh, paranoid, and one was realistic. I believe. Can you tell us about those yeah, correlates? Kind of, again, I'm just um, trying to come up with a classificatory system by which we can evaluate conspiracy theories to decide if they're true or not. So, again, the kind of more paranoid ones, you know, the alien lizard people are running the world. Okay, this is so out there. It's, you know, it's unlikely to be true. But more realistic ones. When I saw that one, I thought of the, is that Mark Zuckerberg people when they see him? They call yes, him like a right, lizard? Right. Okay. <laughs> right, yes. He he actually does sort of look like an AI, right? He's probably on the spectrum. I'm sure he is, like Elon. Elon says he's uh, you know he's on the spectrum. Okay, uh, maybe that's not such a bad thing. That used to be considered a bad thing. You know, now it's called cognitive diversity. That's good. Right? Anyway, but that's not what this is about. This is about you know the aliens have actually visited. They they're here and they're running the show. Okay, that's pretty ridiculous. That's that's one extreme. You know, the other and more realistic conspiracy theories. Well, okay, so JFK, I, you know, I'm a lone assassin guy, right? I'm, I think there's no evidence for anybody else being involved besides the Harvey Oswald. But I can see why people believe it for a couple of reasons. One, political assassinations do happen. They have happened. I had a database in there, or cited a database from uh, Michael 
uh, oh, I forget his last name now. No, no. Um, uh, oh, anyway, it doesn't matter. Political scientists who collected, uh, you know, what percentage of monarchs throughout European history have been assassinated? It was something like 15, 20% had been killed. In other words, the transfer of power was done through violence. It was a coup. You know, somebody was assassinated or overthrown violently. So it's not completely crazy to think that that happens. Lincoln was assassinated by a conspiracy. Uh, but we found out about it pretty quickly. Within hours, we knew who did it. We, you know, the people at the time. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was, you know, I don't know, it was half a dozen people involved and so on. They were supposed to assassinate the vice president and the secretary of state, secretary of war and so on, decapitate the entire Lincoln administration. And it, they all failed except the one, uh, you know, the Booth managed to kill Lincoln. But so it's not completely crazy to think, well, maybe somebody did that to Kennedy, right? There's, there's kind of a a logic to it in historical context. So, you, but but always you have to look at the specific case. Well, where's the evidence for the second shooter? Who is it? You know, I had Oliver Stone on my show and, you know, who, you know, he thinks the CIA did it. Well, that's a pretty big organization. And we do know that they've been up to no good and they've, they've you know, assassinated leader, foreign leaders. Who in the CIA did it? You know, well, Alan Dulles was somehow involved. He was the head of the CIA. Well, Really? I mean, what evidence do you have for this? He should he should have been indicted. You know, bring him before a grand jury. Come on. You know, well, there was never any evidence. Right. Okay. So again, we have to look at each case specifically. That's true. Some items it's like, where was the police report for this uh conflict? Or why was nobody No, we didn't do it that day, but it still occurred. Normally in the circumstance you would have somebody reach out to someone or right. later talk about it. Like you said, people like to blabber about what occurred. Right. Evidence does emerge. Sometimes it takes a while. I mean, the church committee in the uh, 70, late 70s uh, related to the Kennedy assassination uh, conspiracy theories did uncover a lot of weird things that the CIA had been, had been up to. And in the 90s, there was another uh, kind of revelation of, of uh, secrets about MKUltra, for example, and some other stuff the CIA was up to. WikiLeaks, just think about that. You know, the stuff, even during the Obama administration, President Transparency, you know, not so much, you know, I mean, spying on our own, not just metadata about phone calls, but actual, you know, reading emails, listening to phone calls without, you know, warrantless, warrantless searches, right? You didn't, they didn't have to get a warrant from a judge. You know, there's a reason for that, you know, because agencies like that will abuse their power if they can. They have a good reason. Oh, terrorism, you know, we got to catch the terrorists and, Okay, that's a signal detection problem. If you if you lower your criteria for who you're going to think uh, could be a terrorist, you're going to get more terrorists, but you're also going to get more innocent people, right? So that's why we have those laws <laughs> and protections of individual citizens' rights to privacy. And uh, WikiLeaks showed us that, you know, not so much uh, by our own government in the 21st century. Right? If it wasn't for Edward Snowden, we wouldn't know this. So I consider him something of a hero to democracy. You know, what, whether the specifics, I don't know that much about what, I mean, a lot of it's classified, what was he leaked that could have been damaging. We know some that was bad. So maybe maybe there's a debate to be had there. But my point is that it, without Ed, Edward Snowden or the Pentagon Papers going back with uh, Ellsberg, we wouldn't know what, that Johnson, not just Nixon, but Johnson, Kennedy, you know, covering things up about Vietnam, lying to the public, lying to Congress about what was really going on in Vietnam. Wow. 
Gulf of Tonkin, false flag operation, right? We want to escalate the war. We're going to concoct this kind of maybe semi thing that happened to one of our ships, but we'll blow it up and say they attacked us. Yeah, right? <laughs> it's like that line, you know, that I came, I saw, I conquered. In the 21st century, it's I came, I saw, and I was just standing there minding my own business. <laughs> and he, he attacked me, so we had to invade. You know, this is like Putin. Right. right? Oh, we had to invade Ukraine because the Nazis. What Nazis? Where? <laughs> that guy over there. Okay. <laughs> That's true. Uh, one thing also is like if that from one side it's oh we are doing things for safety or preparedness and then from the other side when there's not much when there's a vagueness to it where something like social media they say we removed you because of community guidelines but you don't know what it's about if you bring these two together it's almost like it covers all the elements where whenever we feel like it this can be uh done because for for everybody so it takes away any sort of uh, I guess rights in some way from individuals of some form. Also related to that, the thing you just mentioned, I like that concept where when there is something that happens awry or some random paper gets out or some words mm-hmm. get out that wouldn't have happened, some of those are the most informative pieces we ever have in history. One time I had a client which I didn't know until a random message came to me. Oh, this was the rate that they were actually charging it. I would never would have known unless they came through, not through the company, but through me. So without that, I would never have known. That's a small example, but we have a lot of examples over time where these papers got out or in some anger, there was a fight and, oh, these people said these things. Can that be very informative? Right. So transparency is is really a key to attenuating conspiracism. When people can see what's really going on, they're less likely to become suspicious and paranoid. You know, just at work, companies that are very transparent, you know, who gets raises and why, what you got to do to get the raise, the promotion. And when it's clear, this is what everybody makes, so there's no secrets. You know, when that doesn't happen, people get very paranoid. You know, how can that guy get the promotion I didn't and so on? And, uh, and certainly that's true. That's one reason why in government agencies, they, you, know, they, you can see exactly what the different tiers are and what they make and how to get there and what classes you have to take or training you have to get to move up. And so on. that's to prevent that kind of paranoia. By the way, on social media, that's an interesting example, uh, you know, community guidelines. You violated a community guidelines. Yeah. And they're so vague, and it's never clear. You, people post this on social media. I got kicked off, and I just got this generic line. It, and I, I suspect it's because I'm a conservative. Maybe, but maybe not. Who knows? But this is the problem with these social media companies. We can kick you off for any reason, and we're not going to tell you. And that's, of course, this is going to make people paranoid. You're doing this because you hate conservatives. You're a bunch of libtards running Twitter, right? <laughs> so here we are with, you know, Elon's maybe going to buy it and change everything, maybe. Maybe a lot of it was just random. You know, the algorithm screwed up because you used a certain word in your tweet and that got flagged, even though you don't believe that. You believe the opposite of that. And you're calling attention to it. This has happened. But again, that lack of transparency. I mean, if Elon buys Twitter and makes it transparent, here is the algorithm. Here's how it works. We're going to publicly show everybody. That would help. That would attenuate conspiracism about social media. That's a true point. I want to do this part here that I thought about where there's so many topics I want to cover, but I will leave those to there. People. I want to focus on some certain people because in the end of the book, you mention quite a few individuals, some of which I have talked with, some not. Hmm. But I want to check what you think about what they're currently doing or what happened to them because a lot of them have gotten like we could call it like kind of punched, if you will, for their activity and uh, what comes to mind or 
what you have learned from them, kind of like a speed round, I don't know what to call it, but of each person. So one is Peter Bogosian. He's very uh, active right now. He will go on college campuses and ask and bring a logical demeanor to students. What comes to mind in relation to him? Pete, yeah, Pete's great. He's, he's, a, he's a longtime good friend. He's a good guy. He has a lot of integrity. He really wants to make a difference. He wants to do the right thing. He is He's a standard kind of old school liberal uh, who is concerned about the shift toward the far left and progressive wokeness and how censorious that is in you know kind of destroying liberty and free speech uh, of thought, freedom of thought. So I like his program. I mean, it's not something I would do. He does it well, you know, the kind of street epistemology, as he calls it, you know, that kind of Socratic method. It, it, it's a real skill I don't have just questioning people to kind of draw them into uh, you know, what the real debate is about and, you know, what would it take for you to step from here to here, change your mind. I love how he does that. And uh, so, yeah, he's great. I like Pete. And by the way, his, the, you know, the, the so, so-called squared hoax that, he, you know, he and his teammates did on that of, of concocting these fake journal articles that were published. You know, people don't like that. They get mad about it and you know, it doesn't prove anything. Well, it does. I mean, it, it, the, fact, the fact that even if whether it get published or what kind of journal it was, just that if you read a paragraph from a real journal article and the fake journal article and you can't tell the difference, there's something uh, wrong there. You know, it's like, okay, it, it, obscuritism of the language has gotten so bad that if, a, if an average intelligent reader has no idea what the hell you're talking about, then maybe we need to clarify things in that field a little more. It says something. It's kind of like in your book when conspiracy was made up and still a percentage of people believed it. Yes. It says something it's about the Dakota crash, right? <laughs> right. The magnetic effects of the vaccine. What magnetic effects? You know, make these things up and people tick the box. It's not clear why they tick the box. Uh, you know, that maybe they're in the mode of, you know, I suspect everybody, this one, this one, this one, this one, and they just don't even really think about it. Nicholas Christakis, I once spoke with him. It was very friendly. One of I remember some people is very friendly, super friendly. And then he also had a popular item when he was with the students and they surrounded him. And that was uh, very shared on the Internet. Your thoughts on him and his ability to stand in uh, logic and informational nature. Oh, I like his work on social networks, of course, before I even met him, before that incident happened at Yale. Um, and because he really showed it to what extent, uh, you know, environment of other people you're around, people who smoke tend to be with other smokers, people who have weight problems tend to be around other people that have weight problems. So, you know, change your social environment. What a difference that makes. That was eye-opening. But the Yale thing, you know, I've, I've seen him on uh, Joe Rogan's podcast. He didn't want to talk about it that much. I could tell he was uncomfortable, in a part because he was sympathetic to the students. You know, he's a liberal, and this is kind of a liberal cause, uh, you know, and so you know, want to be sympathetic, but he could see this was going too far. So he, you know, I could see he was in that kind of conflicting area there uh to me it was an eye-opener i mean that was kind of the pinnacle of that kind of woke progressive censoriousness on campus to just taken to the extreme just so ridiculous you know this is our home no it's not it's not your home it's a college campus you're supposed to hear ideas you don't want to hear this is the whole point of being here right <laughs> you're supposed to protect us from bad ideas no 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 that's not his job his job is to do the opposite of that right so, and and the whole thing was on this ridiculous, you know, uh, Halloween costumes. Which are the acceptable ones? Which are not? You have to tell us. No, we're not going to tell you that. You're adults. Grow up. <laughs> so that I thought was just a game changer. Just to just to alert average people who are unaware of what's going on in college campuses. That's how far it's gotten at Yale. You know, one of the 
biggest institutes in the country. So, uh, and then finally his, his new book on, um, the blueprint, uh, book, um, I thought this was great, you know, just to show that really, uh, I, I love the section on, um, accidental societies that are set up these, uh, uh shipwrecks yeah. where people survive, they have to kind of form a little group and, and and the ones that are more vertical uh, I don't do so well as the ones that are more horizontal, that is more cooperative and so on. People that stick with kind of more vertical military type social structure don't do as well. That that was an eye opener. Maybe bureaucracy comes up in there. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, it's a problem, yeah. Now, Nicola Rehani, I found her to be very intelligent when we spoke. She did research on cleaner fish. You have uh, mentioned her. Anything that comes to mind about her book, The Social Instinct, which just came out in paper book also. Oh, right. Yes. Right. Well, um, on cooperation. Yeah. Does cooperation play in the conspiracy at all also? Well, I think so in the sense that, uh, again, it's one of my three. So there's proxy conspiracism, uh, constructive conspiracism, and tribal. I think it's the tribal conspiracism. You know, I want to be considered a reliable tribal member. I'm a good Republican or, or Democrat. I'm, I'm a good Christian or Jew or Muslim or whatever. I'm going to signal to my fellow group members that uh, I have virtue. So this is virtue signaling under the rubric of costly signaling theory. The crazier the idea that I in, in, endorse, the more I signal to my fellow group members, I am really one of you. Like I'm willing to publicly say, I think QAnon is true. This would be an example. You can't possibly believe it. Well, okay. But everybody else in my group believes it, so I'm going to signal to them that I'm one of the group. And I'm so loyal, I'm willing to publicly state I believe this insane idea, right? <laughs> so I, I think the social cooperation, social instinct, it makes it hard. It's hard to stand out in your group. You want to be accepted. I don't want to be a weirdo. I don't want to be the one that stands out. That's true. It's like you're showing I will take a hit or take a risk. It's like the person going over the hill and taking some arrows from the attackers. Right. Right. I'm willing to do that kind of. Uh, I'll throw two other individuals. Uh, Richard Dawkins, because he was always one of my favorites, the selfish gene. Uh, do you think about the selfish gene at all today? And I, I believe maybe you have spoken with Dawkins. What, what do you think of Richard Dawkins? Oh, I've known Richard since the early 90s, since we started The Skeptics in 92. He was one of our early speakers. For one of his books, he always toured the United States for his books. And I love him. He's great. He's brilliant. He's a deep thinker. He's not shrill and and uh, militant, as you know, deists call him. He's a militant atheist. He's shrill. No, he's not. I mean, it's the opposite of that. If anything, he has to kind of he's kind of shy, and he has to kind of push himself to get out there and, and be more uh, of a public intellectual in debating things because that's not his style. I know him personally pretty well, and and uh, you know he's a really nice guy. He, again, this kind of public image he has because of the God Delusion book that kind of really put him out in the public map more more even so than the selfish gene. Um, but he's not; he's thoughtful. I was at a conference once where he was being honored, and uh, but I just noticed that we these kind of small groups where we'd break up and discuss different things, and he would sit there and quietly listen while everybody. These are all like super smart, successful people. And uh, and so the idea would be kind of ricocheting around the room and then like half an hour into it, he would say something, you know, give his thoughts. And all of a sudden, the entire conversation shifted. Oh, you know, as Richard would say, you know, Richard makes a good point. You know, Richard pointed out that, you know, oh, wow. OK, so he's he's at another level, even amongst you know the, the best, smartest people you can think of. Right. And of course, the, the, the selfish gene still is cited and in print and so on, huge because it's an important book. Even this is a good example of of, uh, of how to write a good science book. 
uh, it's for professional scientists and the general reader. You'll see Both. People, you'll see people on the air in an airplane reading this helpless gene, and you'll see professional scientists citing it in their professional papers. I thought about that once with the lyricist. If you have uh, high level lyrics and also a base level lyrics for the average person, that's the best uh, you mm. can possibly do because you reach both. Nice analogy, yeah. I thought about that in detail. If you're at the bottom, you can reach a lot of people, but there's a chunk that will never listen to your right. music. Richard Dawkins is wonderful. Now, actually, you mentioned college. Before I go to the next person, college campuses right now, uh, what do you think of them? Would you want to be on a college campus? It's not the same as it was, let's say, 15 years ago. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, well, I am on a college campus. Right, right. <laughs> and and for the most part, you don't see the craziness. You know, if you just watch Fox News and, and the little segments they show of campus craziness, you'd think every campus is, you know, boiling over and in protests every day. No, most of the time students are just doing their thing. Uh, but the number of incidents of those kind has increased. Maybe there was a spike in the late 60s, say 68 you know, with all the protests over the Vietnam War and then Watergate in 71, 72 and all that stuff. It, it was pretty volatile then. I'd say it was quiescent after that. And then it spiked again with George Floyd and the Me Too movement, the BLM movement and so on. And now the kind of wokeness has gotten there. And it is it is pervasive. And even if so, the point one point I make is that, well, you go to campus it's pretty quiet. You don't see much, but it doesn't take much to get everybody to kind of shift over uh, out of fear of being. First of all, pluralistic ignorance, the spiral of silence. Second of all, fear of being outed and canceled yourself. So there's kind of a preemptive denunciation. I'll denounce somebody before they denounce me, right? Even if nobody please, really believes any of this stuff. So that is pervasive. Also, administrators are, I don't know what their motive is. They're scared. They're, they want to protect themselves legally. So, you know, we all have to take these training online training programs about race and sex and so on sensitivity and you know what what kind of jokes can be told none don't tell any jokes ever again <laughs> no jokes ever no jokes ever you know and they the scenarios are just so dumb right so you know you're 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 in a meeting and so you overhear somebody tell an off-color joke about race or sex or whatever and uh, you should a repeat the joke b uh, intervene and tell them why it was wrong or C, reported to human resources. <laughs> the answer is always C, you know, <laughs> turn them in, right? So enough enough of that goes on, people self-censor. So I worry about it that way, the self-censorship because college campuses used to be the opposite of that. People just speak their minds. Now you're being canceled by your own fellow liberals. Not good. You just remind me of something I wrote as far as self-censorship and how it may kill something I wrote down. Canceling a topic or a person kills the thing in the moment, but not the reality of, reality of it ready to spring back up. Also cutting off the wings of a bird to keep it in a cage. It's no longer a bird, basically. Does that kill something? Nicely put. Yes. Yeah, that's the problem. It like right. ends a category. Yeah. But it's still there underneath. Right. Right. So, and it makes, it makes uh, academia less trustworthy because outsiders look at that and go, these people are so insane about this gender thing or whatever it is. Why should I believe them about climate change or vaccines? You know, there's just a bunch of nonsense going on over there. That's the problem. Loss of trust in institutions that used to be trustworthy. I mean, teachers were always highly respected. You know, police always respected. You know, the CDC, government agents like agencies like that, always highly respected in polls. Not anymore. I mean, Congress now is like the lowest. It's, the trustworthiness in Congress is like the lowest it's ever been. Right? The public just doesn't trust Congress. Wow. This is the people that are running the country. Right. <laughs> Not good. It's hefty. 
I felt hefty there for a second because it it weighs on when I think about that. It yeah. cu- things are yeah. limited. I don't like to see limitation. I like abundance and opportunities. So when I see things like being limited or self censorship, like you're talking about, it is not in my category. Right. I like more entropy and variety and whatnot. My ch- the channel, by the way, for the people used to be called Arm Entropy. Oh, oh. <laughs> combine, combine that there. Nice. Uh, I'll throw in because you spoke with. I have to throw in Jordan Peterson. He is super popular. His empathic sense or feeling oriented nature, I think, is related with a lot of individuals. He's spoken for certain groups well. Uh, what are your thoughts on Jordan and his uh, personality? I like Jordan. I know him a little bit. I say he's a good friend, but I, I I know him, and I like him. I think he's for the most part doing good work. I think his intentions are good. He wants to help people, and he is. So what's wrong with that? Well, because he speaks his mind on things that are controversial, and that's not so acceptable anymore, which is what we were just talking about. So uh, I think uh, he goes too far in the kind of mythology stuff. I think sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. doesn't really represent what he thinks it does. Maybe. Well, it's difficult. <laughs> Nicely put. I tried. Yes. Uh, I, I could not get through Maps of Meaning. I tried. You know, I, I, I lasted like seven, eight hours on the audio version, but it's like 30 hours long. So I DNF'd after, after a while because I just couldn't understand the language. Maybe I'm just not steeped in mythology. I mean, I, uh, I went through my Joseph Campbell stage in the 80s and read all that stuff, The Hero with a Thousand Faces and uh, Comparative Mythology. I loved all that stuff. But it's not really the way I think about the world. I'm much more empirical and rational. And, you know, things that are mythically true or psychologically true, I don't know, I don't know what that means. I mean, I, I do know what they mean by it. But to me, I just want to know if it's really true. Right. So for me, the resurrection of Jesus either happened or it didn't. And I don't think it did because of the evidence. It's an extraordinary claim. The evidence is far from extraordinary. But if somebody says, yeah, but it's, it's, uh, it's mythically true for me. It's like, OK, you know, whatever it takes to get you through the night. Life is hard. OK, but I want to know if it's really true. You know, did he really was he really dead for three days and then he was really brought back to life? Really? And if not, then what's the point of being a Christian? Right. Might as well be a Jew or nothing. And but for somebody like Jordan, I think it's like it's okay to believe if it makes a pragmatic difference in your life. Okay, I can see that for some people, not for me. But so I think he has an effect that way. And I do think the loss of of um, structure for a lot of young people, you know, goals, kind of moral grounding and some kind of commandments of some sort. Another doesn't have to be religious, but that kind of moral relativism that has spread uh, and his pushback against that, I think is good, you know, because I'm a moral, I'm a moral realist myself, even though not through religion, I think we can derive these things through reason. And, and he's not, he's not clear that he's religious, although he, he seems to cozy up to a lot of religious people and they seem to think of him as one of their own. So maybe he is some practical level. I don't know, but, uh, but for the most part, I, I think what he does is good and I like him. Mm-hmm. He brings that feeling-related element to it. He's a, and he's a smart guy. He really is. A, he's a deep thinker. I, you know, I think his definition of truth is far from my own. I think he's wrong, but uh, but that's okay. I mean, you know, what do I know? I'm not omniscient either, <laughs> right? So, uh, you know, I think he brings a different voice to the table, and that's good. I say I would think there's a great humbleness to any like person in the science realm. It always you can tell. There's just like. There's large things. What do we know? We're figuring it out. It's like a calmness. It's not like a... I've been to a couple of his events, and they were, he was well-received. 
but it was not it just it was a bunch of proud boys there not at all i mean it was a lot of women like a diverse range of ages and i don't know i just thought it was it was fun i mean i have a longtime friend of deepak chopra i remember going to see him and Eckhart Tolle, uh, Len, uh, Leonard Mladenow, the physicist. And I went to this because he's friends with Deepak too. And it was quite a happening. It was at the Shrine Auditorium in LA. It was like 3,000 people filled this auditorium. And Deepak and Eckhart Tolle just kind of walked to the stage, walked on stage in their jeans, t-shirt, and socks. They didn't even have shoes on. <laughs> it's just, it couldn't be more casual. And again, th- th- these were not like fringe, poor people or just, you know, whack job. No, I mean, they were, Parking lot was full of like Teslas and and Lexuses and Mercedes and these are well-to-do Hollywood people. There, why were they there? Because you know they're giving some kind of message, not religion, kind of spiritual, you know, awe and wonder, meditation, the power of living in the now. You know, kind of trying to uh, put behind you all the dark, bad things that have happened and deal with them and move forward and get your life in order and. A lot of people need that, you know, and and they don't get it. So I think I think uh, Deepak, like uh, Jordan, wants to help people, and he, you know, again, a lot of his techniques are not mine. I, you know, I just wouldn't do this or that, but that's okay. A lot of people, a lot of people, get value out of that. There's a functional sense to it. The prag- yeah, that's right, functional sense. Yeah, yeah. Well, this one I want to combine two people in a way because similar category and thoughts on. Uh, consciousness too. Donald Hoffman, who I spoke with, and Matthew Cobb, the idea of the brain, they're both in the category of consciousness and thoughts. What are your thoughts on either them or consciousness or also um, our ability to have will, free will, if you will? Yeah, my thoughts on thoughts, right? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I had both those guys on on my podcast. Hoffman, I think, goes too far with his uh, interface theory of truth. Uh, I was critical of that in the same way I am of Jordan's theory of truth. I do think there is objective reality. I think we can get to it. Uh, not perfectly, uh, of course, but, you know, uh, again, and I'm sure there's species-specific truths. The bat sees this differently than the way I see it. It's probably a different image on his visual cortex than mine, whatever they, cortex they have for echolocation. But but there really is something right there. That microphone is real. It's physical. I won't tap it and blow your listeners' ears out. <laughs> but it's real. And so regardless of what it looks like on my cortex, in any case, it's just neurons firing. It doesn't look like anything on my cortex. You open back on my skull and you see my visual cortex, you don't see a microphone there. So, um, but, but we can get to it through the techniques of, of uh, rationality and reason, science, and so on, through this kind of collective enterprise is we want to know what reality is. And we're getting better at that. And it'll never be true with a capital T, but we can approach the truth with a small t toward an asymptotic curve. We're getting closer and closer. And so I think uh, Donald goes too far on his, you know, it's it's all this kind of just species-specific you know, artifacts of the brain and uh, that we don't know what the reality is. Most philosophers agree with me, not him. Surveys based on, you know, what correspondence theory of truth and, and objective reality and so on. As for free will, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a compatibilist like Dan Dennett. I think his arguments are pretty sound. I'm not a determinist. I think we make our own uh, volitional choices at, at a higher level. You know, it's not, you're not going to find free will at the molecular level. Well, it's just neuron swapping chemicals. Yeah, it, that, that's a physical system. The laws of nature uh, follow you know, that and so forth. But that's not where the uh, volition happens. It happens that it's an emergent property of 
molecules swapping across synaptic gaps. You know, you are aware of your own, you know, things that are influencing you. You are part of the causal net, but you're also changing the causal net as you go forward in time. So here you have to accept that the universe is not predetermined. Now, a hardcore determinist would say it was all set out at the Big Bang. You know, you and I would be having this conversation was determined 13.78 billion years ago. I was going to move my hand like this. <laughs> right, just like that. Yeah, I, I don't accept that. I think that's that's very, very unlikely. So I accept um, uh, free will in the in the compatibilist sense that we have a kind of volition, what, what Dan Dennett calls the, the kind of free will worth having, kind of volition worth having. That is the kind where I can make my decisions and I can be held accountable for my decisions and my choices. Again, degrees of freedom. I mean, the alcoholic or the drug addict has fewer degrees of freedom than I do because I don't have that problem. And for whatever reason, genes, environment, whatever, you know, he has fewer degrees of freedom. Okay, so but we already take account of that, right, in the law. You know, to what extent were you aware of right and wrong, the McNaughton law, the rule? And uh, to what extent could you control your behavior? You know, so crimes of passion. I just lost my mind. I can't believe I did this. Okay, maybe we call it, you know, second degree murder rather than first degree murder. You're still going to jail, but maybe not for so long. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that's it. That's my thoughts on that. Makes sense. That's true. The law does give weight to some elements that it has to take into account because we have to think about how our thinking is. Now, separate from category of people, the section on places, I wanted to say in general, when you think of places you have resided in or been in, what are some key locations that you have uh, been uh, great for an intellectual activity or that meant a lot to you? What locations come to mind? You mean geographic locations? Geographic or could be institutions or locations, cities. Are there any things that come to mind as places that this was important for this mm. activity? Mm, interesting. Yeah, no one's asked me that before. That's that's a good question. Well, I mean, we had our lecture series at Caltech, which was really stimulating. It's such a great place to be at. So many great minds there. And so people willing to come there because they wanted to speak at Caltech and be part of that intellectual community. That was important, I think. Um, but, but probably more importantly is, to me, it doesn't really matter where you are <laughs> as long as you're with people that are interested in these topics. If you have books and other people and Internet access today, I guess, uh, you can access this anywhere. Uh, I mean, that's the I feel lucky that I live in the world we do. And I'm old enough to remember when none of this was around. Right. None of, no Internet. Right. So I just had my books and I had to go to a library. Remember that? What is that? It's this big building with books in it. Oh, I haven't been one of those in ages. You don't really need to. Well, anyway, I, I still like libraries and bookstores. I still go to bookstores. As locations, yeah, actually, let me throw that in. You know, like, um, independent bookstores are really fun to go to and just walk around, particularly ones that like Powell's Bookstore in Portland has used books. You know, those are, I really like that. Uh, because a lot of times, like the Amazon feature, if you bought this book, you might be interested in these other books. I often buy books based on that. It's like, oh, I didn't know about that book. How did I miss that? I'm going to buy that. And same thing in used bookstores. I walk around and I just pull it right off the shelf. Whoa, what is this? How did I miss this in my literature search? Okay. <laughs> and, yeah. That's funny because that is true for Amazon and then that's true for used bookstore. But the Amazon bookstore in person was not that because they just did the most popular books. So there was no random finding of interesting books. They wouldn't have them there. So it's kind of funny. The combination kind yeah. of ended that part. Right. This one, I, I was going to throw it at the beginning, but I thought I'd throw it at the end. Are there any key figures from your 
family figures that like you have a similar quality to one or the other that has been a big part of everything you have done? Oh, interesting. Another good question. Yeah, I guess, uh, well, I had four parents. My parents were divorced when I was young and each remarried and had kids. So I have kind of typical American blended family. My parents were not educated. Uh, you know, my pursuit of a scholarly academic life is not something I got from my parents other than they're kind of instilling in me a sense of hard work and personal responsibility, that kind of thing. Um, and just being good parents. I mean, that's, there's not much you could do. You know, you've already given your kids your genes, give them a nourishing environment, but you can't force them to become anything. I don't think that's a good idea. So, you know, people just have to take their own life paths. For me, I also have mentors in college. You know, when I went to college, I had no idea what I was doing. And just by pure chance, just happened to run into a couple of professors at Glendale College, Community College, where I was getting my GE courses out of the way for free. It was free back in the 70s. What? <laughs> I know. Even Pepperdine that I went for, for my bachelor's, I was, I don't know, it was like $800 for a course or something. It was maybe not even that. I mean, it was cheap compared to now. Uh, so, but so, yeah, just uh, maybe half a dozen professors in my life that made a huge difference. And that's pretty random. I mean, you, you, you can do word of mouth, but maybe you tick the box. Well, that class is closed. I'll take this one. Whoa, lucky me. That was a great professor. That you know, And then, uh, you know, it, just running into books that I didn't know about and read them is like the author is now a mentor, right? He's a great thinker. And, uh, and then, you know, now at this point, you know, just having colleagues, people like Richard Dawkins, you mentioned Stephen Pinker is a good friend. You know, people like that um, also are enriching and and still shape my thinking you know my i I rewrite my lectures every semester uh rewrite them but i you know update them and stuff because to me the whole point of be doing this is to keep active intellectually active and keep changing things as new information comes in i highly value that connecting with intellectuals and adjusting over time so you stay sharp is a big deal to me yeah my last thing i will throw at you here is what is one item you would want people to take away from your book, Conspiracy? One, obviously there's many. Great notes, by the way. I took, I want to showcase. Wonderful. Oh, well, you sure did. Wow. It's, it's worth That's taking. Impressive. It's worth taking wonderful notes. <laughs> you get so much out of it. You, you lose a lot by not taking notes, I think. Oh, yeah. I do that with books. I take notes. Yeah, it's good. Right. What can the average individual take away from Conspiracy? Why the rational believe the rational one message or two that you would want them to take throughout their day if I guess such it would a be um, yeah that's a great question I guess it would be that conspiracies are real uh, but a lot of the conspiracy theories uh, about them are not true so you really have to look at them carefully and reason about them decide which ones are true and which ones are not and for the most part it's better to be skeptical because a lot of ideas enough ideas are are false that it pays to be cautious not to be susceptible to false ideas like the rig election, you know, if it, it just be careful. Makes sense. Dr. Shermer, I would like to thank you very much for having been on this episode. This meant a lot to me. It's nice to connect with those who I see as pinnacle figures who I have thought of you in this category for many years and describing a bit about your book and other individuals. Very glad to have you on. 
Well, thanks for coming all the way up here to Santa Barbara. I really appreciate it. I, I know how terrible it is to be here next to the beach, but <laughs> this is the worst. I cannot deal with this. This is ridiculous. But you have to pay the price sometimes in life. That's right. That's right. I have to bite the bullet. The difficulty is going to show up, but there was a good thing on the other side. There was all a fruit right. on the tree. All right. Wonderful.